Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 437 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, May 18th, 2010. We're going to have a great show today. I'm going to talk to you today about the road to individual energy independence. And what do I mean by the road? I mean it's a step-by-step process that we work at over time. It's really difficult for most people anyway, unless you have a rich uncle that dies and leaves you a ton of money or win the lottery, to go from being 100% tied to the grid and all the dependence that comes with that to being completely energy independent tomorrow. There's challenges even for, let's say, the extremely wealthy in getting that done with efficiencies and the systems that are actually available today and your individual desire for how much energy you need to run your household the way you want to do it. But there's steps that we can all take toward greater energy independence, and it really goes a long way to to provide for what the show stands for. That is living a better life today, even if nothing goes wrong. It also applies to living a better life tomorrow when something does go wrong, because sooner or later it will. Every step you've taken toward having your own energy supply is one step uh, where you'll have greater energy resources if the grid should fail for any of a variety of reasons. You know, life was pretty tough back in, let's say, the, the late 1700s, right? That the, the, you know, period in America right before uh, the Great Expansion, uh, before the real Industrial Revolution took place. And why? Well, it was mostly because of a lack of energy resources. You depended on wood for heating. You depended on a lot of things uh, that you had to go out and get. But there was no light switch anywhere. Not even the wealthiest person in the world had a light switch, right? So this energy that we have today has done so many things for us. It makes a lot of sense for us to start to figure out how we can keep it going if it will ever fail. Before we get into the main topic today, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Uh, housekeeping item number one today is uh, taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Common Sense Prep. They are an awesome company run by an awesome guy with some really awesome products. There's a lot of stuff you want to check out there. One thing you definitely want to check out is their selection of Paladin Press books. There are some of the coolest books I've ever seen available from Paladin Press on prepping and homesteading uh, and a lot of things, including things like uh, living uh, a, a anonymous lifestyle, let's call it that, and some other really cool stuff. So here's my suggestion. Check out those Paladin Press books. And remember, if you're a member of the Member Support Brigade, you get 15% off of all of those books with a special link that's available in your member support area. 
Next up today's sponsor of the day is the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle from Ready Made Resources. And I actually, right before I started recording this call, just got off the phone with Bob Griswold over at Ready Made Resources. And he's telling me about a new product they have as well in that same uh, line of product. Not just the water bottle, but now what they have is a Lifesaver jerry can, which is uh, obviously capable of holding a much larger quantity of water. And you can take it with you and filter the water uh, when you kind of get around to it. So you're able to carry a larger volume of water, let's say in a bug out situation. So by combining the Lifesaver 4000's filtration technology with the jerry can, that allows you to be transporting up to five gallons of water that you can filter and make safe to drink no matter what its source. The Lifesaver filter system is filtered down to .015 micron. That's smaller than the smallest bacteria in viruses. So I want you to check out, this not the Lifesaver 4000 today, but the Life, uh, Lifesaver jerry can. Um, and that product will actually filter... Uh, up to one or up to ten thousand liters of water uh, per filter uh, filter life. That's an awful lot of water. That'll go a long way. Uh, so check out that product. As always, ready-made resources provide some of the coolest stuff uh, that I've ever seen for the prepper. Moving on from there. Make sure that you connect with us by all our social media outlets online. That includes Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, our forum, and subscribing to us with iTunes and subscribing to our email alert list. You'll find links for all of that at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, uh, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll also get discounts from up to 20 vendors, a selection of free eBooks, and... Uh, I'll tell you what, I'll leave it at that today. I don't want to turn every show into an infomercial for the MSB. Last but not least, though, remember we have our new theme song, The Revolution Is You, and I'm looking for your help to develop a really cool slideshow video with pictures of you as part of the revolution. This is anything from reloading ammunition to teaching kids to shoot that air rifle to uh, working in your garden to working with your livestock to installing solar panels on your roof to setting up backup power. Yes, including standing out at a Tea Party rally or part of the Free State Project or any other grassroots movement. I want your photos. One thing, folks, I've got a lot of pictures coming in. Some of them are awesome. A lot of people are sending me like 20 pictures of their garden and there ain't one of them with a human being in it. Uh, folks, I want pictures with people in it. You, your kids, the best would be you and your kids together. The revolution is not you if you are anonymous. I know some folks in this uh, niche want to stay completely, totally anonymous. I understand that for some. But I'll tell you what, folks, in a, in a project like this, if we want to make a statement, we need to put faces behind the actions. Not necessarily names, but faces. All right. Uh, moving on from there, let's go ahead and get... Oh, I wanted to remind you, if you want to send me a picture or a series of pictures to be used, please make sure they're in JPEG format. That'll be the easiest for me to use. Uh, send them an email to me with the subject line saying pictures or photos. Either one will work. And send that to jack at com. Again, jack at com. All right. So let's go ahead and get into the main topic today, which of course is developing energy, individual energy independence and kind of the road to get there. And I'm going to tell you when I get into the steps, I'm going to kind of give them to you in the order that makes the most logical sense for me. That doesn't mean you have to follow my order. I'll tell you why I feel that way, what I think about uh, that, that process, why I've kind of put them that way for my own journey through life, is, uh, especially as we move to uh, our, our more remote location where we're going to make a permanent home. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to do them in that order. 
All right. But before we even talk about the steps, I want to talk about the whys. Why would we want energy independence? Why would we go on a quest? Why would we spend money? Why would we spend effort? Why would we spend time educating ourselves? Why wouldn't we just make a phone call? And uh, I mean, if we had the money and just say, hey, somebody come out here and do this for me, why would we become educated on the process? Uh, why would we do these things? Well, first of all, we have to separate two things if we're going to have a discussion about this, and that is alternative energy versus green energy. I want to say straight up, I have no problem with green energy. A lot of what I'm going to talk about today could be considered green energy. And, of course, green energy is energy uh, that doesn't produce any type of pollution whatsoever. Um, but alternative energy to me is anything that's alternative. And this is my definition and my definition alone. But when I'm discussing this, when I say alternative, anything other than me flipping a switch and power coming from a grid source or turning on a heater, maybe that's provided by natural gas, and having natural gas that comes from a pipeline that runs to my house. Those are traditional energy in America today, because that's what's in everybody's home. Having, let's say, appliances that run on liquid propane, and having a liquid propane reserve in your backyard in the form of a tank or several tanks, even though you have to depend on somebody to bring it there, it gives you a longevity during a crisis that somebody else may not have. So to me, that's a form of alternative energy. A liquid propane tank is not a very powerful source of alternative energy, as far as I'm concerned, compared to some other things that we can do. But it is an alternative energy source. A generator that runs on natural gas, diesel, or gasoline is also an alternative energy source. Not, again, maybe not the most powerful alternative energy source, one with some limitations, but let's put it this way. If you have a, a, a 10 kilowatt generator, and um, your power in your neighborhood goes off, and you fire your generator up, you have electricity, and enough to run just about most households, maybe not every single thing all tilt at once, but all the basic functions of a household, you're not going to have any problems at all with a generator system like that tied into your power distribution system. It's an alternative. It's an alternative to the lights go out, and you sit in the dark and in the cold or the heat, uh, and have your food go bad in your refrigerator and your freezer while well, it takes the power company three days or four days or five days sometimes to fix it. We had people during the ice storm in northern Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky uh, a year ago where they were without power for up to three weeks. That's kind of stretching a generator unless you've done a real good job with fuel storage. But you can get through a lot with that, especially during a cold time of year because you can use... Uh, the cold weather itself to keep some of the food fresh uh, if it comes to that, if you have to limit the output of the generator. So I want you to just understand all of those things to me are alternative. Uh, and then, you know, solar, wind, absolutely. Uh, wood fire generators, anything uh, that would generally be considered a green product is also alternative energy. So green, not bad. But I also want to tell you that something like a generator is not bad either, even though it produces evil carbon. That goes to the next step we're going to talk about today, and that is polar bears versus practicality. I am sick and tired of advertisements about how we're going to save the polar bears. Folks, the polar bears are fine. If the ice melts, they'll swim to wherever they want to go, 
and uh, there was a period in time where we had a lot less ice cover than we do today. And polar bears made it just fine through that period. They made it through the ice age. They made it through the little ice age. They've made it through temperate and warming climates. The polar bears are just fine. And if folks that want to save baby seals, you got to make a choice. You're going to save the polar bears or the baby seals because those cute polar bears, they eat baby seals. What I'm really talking about here is the global warming nonsense. I don't want to talk about it a lot today. I don't want to get too fired up. But I want you to understand that your individual energy independence has absolutely, positively nothing to do with carbon. Nothing. And the reason I say that is I want you to do these things, not think about them and not feel like you should and not feel guilty because you go and get a household someday that runs 60% off solar and wind and have to rely on a generator or the grid for the other 40%. I don't want you to feel guilty about that 40%. I want you to feel empowered by the 60%. I want you to be motivated by the practical nature of being independent, having control of your own life, having control of your own situation, and being able to face disasters with eyes wide open and walk through the storm and be able to take care of you and your family versus having some greeny guilt. And here's the beautiful thing. Even if you're a, a huge environmentalist, which by the way I am, I'm a big environmentalist, I just don't believe in global warming. But even if you're a big environmentalist that believes in global warming and think Al Gore actually deserves a freaking Nobel Prize that he got, it doesn't matter. If you do things my way, you still reduce that stupid carbon footprint they want to talk about. It just happens faster with more motivation if you think about the practical side of it versus some, some guilt trip that's been handed to you. So I really want you to think about practicality today. That's saving money. That's being prepared for disasters. That's having independence from uh, government. That's having independence from corporations. That's practical. That's real. I'll tell you right now. If you tomorrow went completely off-grid and didn't ever create another drop of carbon for the rest of your life, it will not impact polar bears in the North Pole at all, one bit, period. But it'll change your life. That's what I'm talking about when I say practicality. So why? Why do we need to be doing this? Let's look at some common reasons outside of uh, environmentalism. One is peak oil. We hear a lot about that. Will peak oil ever hit us? Yes. Will it hit us in our lifetimes? I don't know. I can tell you this, the stuff that's going on with British Petroleum right now in the Gulf where billions of gallons of oil are going out into our ocean and washing up on the shore in Texas, Louisiana, and Florida and eventually are going to get around the Florida Peninsula and out into the Atlantic Ocean and do God knows what, isn't helping at all. A lot of this offshore drilling stuff that we had planned for expansion and thought one day that would save us, uh, whether real or feigned, the fact that this disaster has occurred, and it is a disaster, uh, is going to impede future offshore drilling. That's going to limit oil supply. One way or another, peak oil or not, what we should be thinking about is the peak expense of energy. And what I mean by that is, when do you get to a point where you start actually like getting rid of electrical appliances? I call that peak expense where you actually start to really freak out, and maybe there's this new commercial going on now, where this lady says she was trying to get her family to turn off the lights, and she comes walking down the stairs with a big basket full of light bulbs. And says, maybe this will get their attention. And you see that right after you see your family flipping switches everywhere, no lights are coming on, and they look up at the light fixtures, and they're empty. When do we get there? When do we get to a point where, you know what, it'll be dark in this room, I don't care, I can't afford it anymore. 
I'll tell you what, for a lot of our retired folks that are living on fixed incomes, it's already happened. I hate going to my father-in-law's house in the summer because it's about 85 degrees in there because that's as low as he'll put the air conditioner. And it's dark because to help keep the temperatures down, he closes all the windows and the and, and the shades and everything. And I think that his his uh, his peak expense is a little more imaginary than reality. I think he's just fine financially. Uh, if he wasn't, we would help him, of course. But that's in his mind. Well, there's a lot of people out there that haven't saved as hard as he has, worked as hard as he has, you know, invested smartly, and they're doing it because they really have to. Well, when's it going to hit all of us? Sooner or later it will. Because have you paid attention to your electric bill? Have you paid attention to the cost of gasoline? Have you paid attention to the cost of natural gas? These prices are continually moving upward. Now, we might have had, you know, peaks that, that throw things off, like where oil was $170 a barrel or something like that a couple of years ago, gasoline was up over 4 bucks. But have you noticed something? Have you noticed something very interesting? Gas is almost 3 bucks a gallon now. In some places, it's more. The cost of oil is nowhere near as high for a, for a barrel of crude as it was the last time gas was this high. The gas is going up without necessarily seeing the oil go up. It tells us one of two things. It's costing them more to refine the gasoline because the oil that they're getting is of lower quality or the cost of the oil is going to go up and they're getting out ahead of the curve. Remember we talked about distribution channels before where the cost of something in the channel sometimes goes up before it goes to the consumer. Well, the converse also happens as well. Sometimes the supply side raises the price because they know the internal commodity coming forward is going to go up in price. So there's a lot, of, lot to think about with peak expense tied to peak oil and peak energy. So it's not necessarily the energy won't be there, but will you be able to afford it in the quantities that you desire to live the lifestyle that you've become accustomed to? The next one is taxation. Most people that listen to this show are very liberty-oriented. What that means is you have a strong desire for as much independence as you can have. And the one thing that really robs us of liberty today is taxation because it's a two-edged sword. When we're taxed, not only is our wealth confiscated by government, and thereby we no longer have it on the advancement toward our own independence. That's the easy side to, to understand. If you make $50,000 this year, and the government, through all of the taxes that you pay, takes away 15000 of it, you're left with thirty-five on your journey. So that fifteen is gone. The other side, though, and the part that we ignore is that the 15 is then used to expand the size and scope of government, to run programs like, you know, like the monetary policy of the United States that continuously create more inflation and make everything cost more. To employ more people in a federal bureaucracy, pay them bloated salaries, have them all over the United States driving up the cost of living because they have more money than the average person in the private sector. All while the people in the private sector have to work their ass off to be producers to put enough money into the government kitty to pay all those government bureaucrats. You really have to think about it that way. Every dime that you don't spend in tax that you keep is not only money that you still have for your journey toward independence, but it's another dime they don't get to create greater oppression through government growth in size and scope and power. The next one to think about is disaster. It's nice 
to be in a situation where if the power fails, at least you have a few lights. Maybe you can turn on that small TV, not the big plasma, but the little one. Uh, use some rabbit ears even if the cable's out. At least stay in touch with the outside world and know what the hell's going on. If you can still run your chest freezer, and uh, even if you don't run your refrigerator, uh, you know if you can at least run that chest freezer and keep the majority of the things that you uh, that you've put away that need to be frozen frozen, that's a good thing too. We're going to talk about a lot of ways to do that, but that's just some of the motivation there. Again, when disaster strikes, be it short or long term, having that alternative energy is a great way to keep on living in comfort, not just wake up breathing tomorrow. Uh, the next one is just pure liberty. If you are dependent on anybody for anything, you're not completely liberated. And it's sad to say that very few people are completely liberated today. But every ounce of liberty gained is worth a pound of effort delivered, in my view. I'll put a pound of effort in for one more ounce of liberty. And what I mean by that is, the more liberty I have, the more liberty I can acquire. It's a lot like wealth, liberty. It's really hard to define. It's really hard to understand. It's intangible. We can't point to something, a, a, an item, a material thing, and say that is liberty. We can only observe liberty in the action and lives of human beings. That's the only way liberty can even be observed. It's like gravity. We can't see gravity, but we can see its effects. That's how liberty is. Well, if you want liberty, you have to start taking it a piece at a time. And what you find out is the more liberty you get, the greater freedom that you have. Again, it's like gravity. Uh, if, if I am being influenced by an object's gravity, the Earth's gravity, and I have a little spaceship circling around the Earth, as I try to pull away from the Earth's gravity, it takes a great deal of effort, but the further I get away, every bit of effort means I need less effort to get further away from that pull. Well, the tyranny of government and the dependence on others works the same way. Every time you get a fraction of a bit further away from that dependence, taking the next step gets easier and requires less effort. So whatever you can gain, you gain. And whatever sector of your life you can gain it. It's not just about political liberty. It's about independence and liberty from, from other people and from other systems that you cannot always depend on, or systems that can change the rules like, you know what, we're just going to jack up electric bills 20% this month. Things like that. All right, so let's get on to what you can actually do. Let's start talking about the route to energy independence. One place where I completely agree with even the, the wildest, nuttiest environmental wacko that really believes we're going to save the polar bears if we combat global warming by capping carbon emissions and all this other nonsense is begin with efficiency. Um, I want you to understand something about efficiency. It's the easiest thing you can do even though it will have the smallest initial impact. If you go out tomorrow and purchase a 4 kilowatt grid-tied solar system for your home with battery backup, so that the batteries are always charged, the solar energy is delivering the surplus to the home, and you're depending on the grid for the, for the rest, it will have a bigger impact on your electric bill than changing every light bulb in your home. But, if you change every light bulb in your home before you do that, then that second action will have an even greater impact. Again, a fraction of an inch toward greater liberty makes taking the next foot easier because you've reduced the pull of dependence. 
So efficiency is where to start. I also want you to understand something about lighting. Lighting is one of the first things to attack, and I, I have mixed emotions on compact fluorescent bulbs. There's mercury in them. They're a toxic waste hazard. I don't know what we're going to do with them uh, when they start to run their life cycle out. We have a couple billion of the things going into our landfills, and I don't know what that's going to do to mercury levels. But they're out there, they're being used, and they're being produced, so we might as well utilize them and try to dispose of them as best we can when it comes time to do that. But I think that most people look at their homes and think, you know, all these lights must be a big portion of my electric bill. For the average household in America, as of 2007, uh, lighting represented only 11% of their energy usage. 11%. So change the light bulbs. Go to those little screwy-looking ones, okay? Uh, eventually, we're going to have better, less expensive, and uh, higher efficiency and better looking LED lighting lights for the home. And I think that's really the way forward. I think that the, the compact fluorescent is kind of a stepping stone to LEDs, uh, to affordable and efficient LED technology, because they draw even less. In fact, the problem with LEDs is they draw so little that they create problems in matter, modern households. So going to LED long term is probably the way that we're going to have the biggest impact on that lighting bill. But understand, when you go report, replace all those bulbs, it's not going to make the dramatic impact on your, uh, on your electric bill you might be expecting, but still do it. So uh, where does our usage go uh, from uh, the Department of Energy? Here we go. It takes 11% of our energy to produce lighting. 12% to, to heat water, 12% to cool homes. Now, this is average across the entire United States. This would be different for Texas, and it would be higher, obviously, uh, in, in the south and lower in the north, the cooling side. 31% to heat our homes. So that's a big place where there's a lot of cost. Other, 8%. I don't know what other is. Refrigerators use about 8%. Appliances, what I guess would be all appliances other than refrigerators, 9%. And computers and electronics draw about 9%. So that tells you that one of the biggest places you can make an impact on the cost of your energy usage is in heating. And the good news about heat is it's way easier to produce from the sun than is electricity. So we'll talk about that in a bit as well. I just wanted to put some stuff in perspective for you so that you realize where the real... Uh, high percentage usage, and it is in developing heat. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because it takes a lot more energy to develop enough heat to heat a room than to run even five light bulbs. All right, so moving on from there, what is kind of the, the, the first step that I see after efficiency for folks that want some energy independence? And for me, it's building a backup power system, even a relatively small one that runs on one battery. Here's the good news about building a backup power system. You don't need to know anything about solar, wind, or alternative energy. All the products that you need could be purchased if you wanted to today at Walmart, and you'd probably be better off spending about 200 bucks to get a really high-end battery and, and some, uh, a good uh, portable uh, rolling cart to keep it in and some other stuff. But you could probably pull the project off for 100 bucks even with new new uh, new materials if you went really low end. Again, I would probably go a little bit higher end. Uh, you won't have to learn anything really complicated to pull this off. Um, all you need is a battery charger, a good deep cycle 12 volt battery, and a power inverter. That's not maybe everything you should have, but that'll get it done. 
Why do I start with a backup system, though, that you plug into the wall of your home? Well, because I said we're going to talk about alternative energy today, not just green energy. I don't care how the power gets to your home. Right now, you have it in surplus. Tomorrow, you may not have it at all. So just like we go to the grocery store and eat what we store and store what we eat, we take advantage of the surplus to create storage. Right? So, yeah, we're dependent on Kroger or, or Winn-Dixie or whatever to go out and purchase next week's grocery order. But instead of just taking enough groceries to make it through the next week, if we're preppers, we buy a little bit extra and we put it into storage. So that's my mentality behind the storage system from a practical standpoint. The next is behind actually getting something done. It's very inexpensive when you think about how much of a return it will give you. And it's very easy to do. You hook the battery up uh, to the, the, the inverter. You plug AC product into the inverter. You have energy. You hook up a battery charger to the battery. You plug it into your wall. You have a battery being charged. You don't even really need a charge controller at this point because most plug-in, in fact, everyone I know of, plug-in battery chargers has a charge controller that's internal. So that keeps the battery charger from overcharging the battery. So what that allows you to do is all of a sudden, the power goes out. Well, you know, at least you can go outside, wheel that little uh, backup battery system in from the garage where it's been plugged into the wall, nicely fully charged, ready to go. And for at least as long as that battery lasts, you can have things like maybe a little bit of lighting, uh, a radio, maybe a small TV. In fact, you can run those things for quite a long time on a good deep cycle battery, like basically like a car battery, but you're better off with something like a marine battery or an RV battery for this. It's really easy to expand the storage capacity of that by including two. You can build it with one battery and save up some funds and then go buy a second battery. Hook those two batteries up so that they are uh, in, in what's called series. And series is very simple. Series is if you have two batteries, you take a lead from the positive uh, terminal of one battery to the positive terminal of the other battery to the power source. You go from the negative terminal of one battery to the negative terminal of the other battery to your ground. And what that allows to happen is those two batteries essentially become one larger 12-volt battery. The other way to hook batteries together is parallel. But most of the off-the-shelf product out there is designed to work at 12 volts. And the thing about when you when you hook up batteries with parallel, what you get is more power. So you go to a higher voltage and you get more output. It's like turning up a faucet, but it's turning up a faucet that's connected to a tank, a fixed a 50 gallon tank of water. So you can push the water out faster. You can do more work with it, but it will come out quicker than if you take the tank and put it out at lower pressure. When you put batteries together in a series. Instead of turning up the pressure, it's like adding a second 50-gallon tank. So the water comes out at the same speed, but lasts longer. That's why I think it makes more sense for small-scale backup systems when you go to two batteries to run them in series. You get a longer power availability, even though you can power less items uh, at a time. But it's a great system because it's easily expanded. Now... Once we get that done, and we have that backup power system, you may think that the first thing I would tell you to do is go out buy some solar panels or a small wind generator and attach it to that backup power system. Nope. 
Nope, not going to say that. Um, soon, but not immediately. And again, you can do that if you want to. There's nothing wrong with it. We'll get to that as the next step after the one that's in between. To me, the next step is go out and buy yourself a nice uh, but reasonably priced uh, low-end generator, something that's going to produce in the neighborhood of 1 kilowatt uh, to 1.5 kilowatts, 1,500 watts. Why that small generator? They sip gas, very inexpensive. You can buy them for around 200 bucks, some a little bit less, some a little bit more. Uh, the, the, the cheap ones are kind of noisy, but hey, at least you've got something. Right? Why the generator? Because with that generator and 10, 15 gallons of gasoline stored, you have an awful lot more capability than a solar panel with that backup system will ever give you. It also gives you a flexibility, and it starts to tie into the concept of two is one and one is none. If I add solar to my power backup system, I still only have one source of power, the power backup system. I can use the, the energy that's been stored in it while it's plugged into the wall until that runs out, and then I can get as much energy as I can from solar or wind into those batteries and apply to run things in my household. With the generator, I have a completely independent system of energy. So now I have two alternative sources of energy versus one with a, a secondary input much more powerful. The other thing is, I can take my little generator set during the daytime when the light is, is shining from the sun, but my power is out. I don't need as much power for the home to run small systems. I can charge my battery with it during the day, my battery backup system with it during the day, and in the evening I can have the generator running some systems, and it has to be, of course, outside of my home because it's noisy and I have emissions, and I might want to run some things at other portions of my house. Well, at that point, I can disconnect the battery backup system and take that into other parts of the home. So now I have not just two sources of energy, but two sources of energy that can be combined and then separated and provide power distribution at different locations in my home under different circumstances. That's my logic. Again, you don't have to follow it. You can change the order. It's up to you. But that's why I think that way. Now, once I have that generator, and I can use that to charge my backup power system, now I have these two independent thoughts. Why not just go to a very powerful generator? 6,500 watts, 7,500 watts. If you got plenty of money and you want to do that, fine. If you're slowly stepping into this, I'd rather you have a small generator than no generator. And we're going to get to the more expensive generator in a bit. Before we do that, though, now is where we're going to go out and find that 60-watt solar panel on eBay with a minor chip or imperfection in it, save some money on the purchase of that, and buy a charge controller. Or find a small wind turbine system if we live in an area that's windy, or get both. And that's where we're going to go out, we're going to set them up, and we're going to run wiring back to our battery backup system, and we're going to begin having the ability to charge our battery backup system, both with the grid and with an alternative energy source. Because now, even if the gasoline storage runs out for the small generator, which you can go a long way with a little generator, and again, 15 gallons of gasoline, but even when that does run out, I still have some power. So now I've created a greater independence. Because now I have two power mediums or two power sources. And I have two different ways to get, actually three different ways to get energy from them. I have the generator with gasoline or natural gas or whatever runs it. 
I've got the alternative energy backup system, which stores surplus grid energy. And then I've got a third way to bring in energy from solar, wind, or both. Now, the interesting thing is, and we'll come back to this in a second, is when I finish that little backup power system, that stupid little 60-watt uh, power uh, uh, solar, uh, solar panel that's out that one side of the house, uh, or that little wind turbine, or both of them running into that backup power system, going through a charge controller. You have to add that component at this point. A charge controller keeps those systems from overcharging the battery system that you're running the power to. I've actually built a scale model of a full-scale solar or wind operation. I've taught myself everything I need to know other than how to hardwire that system into the, the house's power distribution system, which when and if I get there, I can bring an electrician in to do that one component, and I can do the majority of solar, wind, or both installation completely on my own. I've taught myself the installation process, and I only really need an electrician to do the tie-in. So now I can go out and, and figure out where the best solar exposure is, and we'll get to that in a second because I want to go to the next one. Once you have that solar or wind tied to your backup system, this is where I suggest adding a large generator, something in the neighborhood of 7,500 watts or greater. Now, why? We had that little generator. Now we got a big generator. What's the deal with that? Again, two is one, one is none. If either one of those generators fail during a power outage, I still have a generator. So if my big generator fails, I can still charge my little backup system. I can still run the things that I could run with it up to that point. If the small generator fails, I've got the big generator. If both of them are running, I have a tremendous amount of flexibility with what I can do now. Now I've got two generators, right? I want to store more fuel now. But as long as I have that fuel storage, I have the ability to run different systems at different times with those generators, including doing things like maybe charging power tools or running power tools, plus I have the alternative energy source. From here, this is where I start looking at what are the easy things for you to build um, for yourself that can have a direct impact on the most expensive component of your electric bill, and that is heat. Generating heat is expensive when we start with gas or coal or oil. Discharge the heat. Use as much of the heat as we can consolidate in a power plant to spin a turbine. Generate electricity. Distribute the electricity through a grid. Store it on the grid so that we don't have peaks and valleys based on demand and have rolling brownouts like they've experienced in California because they didn't do enough of that and get that power distributed to an electrical outlet that we can plug something into or hook something up to, turn it on and draw that power and convert it back to heat that it originally was. It's inefficient. It's part of why it's expensive, and it's part of why it's such a large portion of your expenses. Again, let me remind you, um, heating your house is about 31%. Heating your water is about 12%. Well, when we add those two together, we get 43% which is damn close to half of our energy usage, takes the form of heat. And again, heat's actually really easy to create. Think about this way. If you walk outside of your house on an August day when the sun is shining, assuming you're listening to this show in the Northern Hemisphere, onto black concrete, it doesn't take you real long to decide that was a bad idea and to turn around and go back in your home or quickly look for a place with some shade because your feet start burning on the black pavement. Why? You have black, 
You have sunlight, you create heat. And it is that simple. So there's two projects that I think make a lot of sense for you to build um, for yourself. The first one is a passive solar heater. And a passive solar heater is one of the easiest projects that you can ever build. Basically, you need a black box of whatever size you choose, and the larger, the, the, the more output you're going to get from it. You need a piece of, you need the inside of it to be painted black. You need to develop a system of baffles in it so that the air doesn't just go straight through it. Uh, so baffling so that you have a board coming from one side almost touching the other, leaving an opening, and then a board coming from the other side, and a board coming from the other side. And I'll put a link to a, a, a diagram of this online for you in the show notes today. But basically it makes the air flow through over time. You have a way for the air to get in the bottom, and of course since heat rises for it to get out the top. This doesn't have to cause, you don't have to penetrate any wall of your home. It doesn't have to be permanently affixed to your home. It can almost be a science experiment the first time you do it, but you'll find yourself using it. Because what you can do is then build yourself basically a window uh, uh, device where you can open a window, insert this into your window, and close it, and it basically seals off the window except for an opening that you cut in it. This can be built with something like plywood uh, and a piece of duct. And you put this on the side of your home that gets the most sun in the uh, wintertime, and all day long, the sun heats up that box, and cool air comes in the bottom, and warm air comes out the top, and you can really heat up a room throughout the day. And even one room of your home being heated that way, that heat's going to disperse through the rest of the house, and on cold winter days, it's going to reduce the burden on whatever other means of energy that you're drawing to heat your home. Really great project, really easy to do. You could probably go around to old construction sites and stuff like that and pick up scrap wood, and the only thing you might have to purchase is a little bit of ducting and probably the plexiglass to uh, to pull it off. You could probably do it almost all with scrap uh, and salvaged materials. I, I really can't see a case where anybody would have to spend, let's say, more than 50 bucks to build a pretty decent-sized one of these things. The other system is a little bit more elaborate, but I think it's something that you might want to consider building as well for yourself. Now, there's commercial systems that do this, and uh, they generally have a payback period of between two to four years, which is a very fast payback, meaning that if you look at the cost of heat, and this is for heating water, if you look at the cost of heating water, whether you're doing it with gas or whether you're doing it with electricity, and you look at putting a commercially prepared hot water system on your home. I'm sorry, it's four to six years is the average payback time on these. Within four to six years, you've saved enough money on, on heating your water to completely pay for the system's installation, even if somebody else does it for you and you buy a commercially prepared product. So it's, it's one of those options that, unlike having solar installed, might make sense to just phone somebody up and have it done especially if you have the funding to do it. Because not only will it pay itself back, especially if you're going to live in your home for more than six years, which means in your seven, eight, nine, and forward, it's 100% profitable. But having that installed is going to increase the value of your home. But let's be realistic. How much does it take to use solar energy to heat water? Uh, there's a lot of different designs for solar hot water heaters. But one of the simplest ones is to simply take uh, pipes, that are painted black inside a blocks that's painted black with a piece of plexiglass over it mounted on the sunny side of your roof uh, make sure it's put together well so it can handle some pressure run a line up to it and back down from it and you take the line that's coming into your hot water heater 
And at that point, you install a bypass valve so that in cold times of the year where it might freeze up on you, you can go out there and turn that valve off so it's, and, and purge the system on the other side so it stops feeding water up there when it's, you know, 20 degrees below zero if you live in South Dakota. Because even with the sun shining, your pipes are going to freeze up on days like that. So you have a, a valve. And you could even have somebody install for you uh, an automatic valve that says once the temperature outside of the home with a little therm thermostat reaches X, shut this valve and open the purge valve and allow the system to purge. Could make it that sophisticated or you just know the cold parts of the year and you can just turn it off when the system's not going to be that efficient. That you need a plumber for. Just to make that connection, if you know how to do it, I guess you can do it yourself. I would hire a plumber to do it. Very inexpensive because you're going to have the whole system ready to go. All he's going to do is tie it in for you. Kind of like solar energy, right? You do the whole system, the electrician comes in and does the final part for you. So you could build any type of uh, solar hot water heating system you want. You could even get, folks, you could get an old hot water heater, gut it basically, put a line in and a line out. There's already a fitting for that. Encase that in a box and paint the hot water heater black. And you'd be amazed at how much hot water you can put into your hot water heater. So what happens then is your hot water heater doesn't go away. But the water going into your hot water heater is already much warmer than water that just comes out of the ground. So your hot water heater has to expend less energy to make that water hot. And in many cases that water will come in, especially in the summer, hotter than you have your hot water heater set. So all that happens then is a hot water heater becomes a hot water maintainer versus a hot water creator. So it gets the hot water in. It just has to keep the temperature up versus drive the temperature up of ice cold water. And if you have anywhere near the capacity on your roof that you have in your hot water heater, you can actually almost have 100% exchange. In fact, very few people taking a single shower use 50% of their hot water heater. Uh, most hot water heaters are 60, 70 gallons, so you're looking at maybe 30 a 30-gallon solar heater. Now, remember, water uh, is kind of heavy, so you have to think about the structure, the outlay, and how this stuff's put on your roof to make it safe. You might even want to have a roofing person come take a look at, do you need to do any reinforcing? Is the roof in good repair? But uh, what you're really looking at putting up there is water that weighs 8.34 uh, pounds a gallon, roughly, so... 30 gallons is about 250 pounds of water distributed in a, a larger footprint, which is going to make the heater more efficient because uh, you have a thinner, more distributed system to heat up. Not going to be a problem for the average roof. I weigh 220 pounds, and I walk around in roofs all the time, and I don't fall through them. So you want to look at the attachment and everything, make sure that's safe. But you're really not looking at a, a weight distribution problem for the average house's roof uh, with, with that kind of weight. So 30 gallons of heated water coming into uh, your hot water heater uh, will make a big significant impact. And it's a very low-cost project where you can do the majority of work yourself. Or you can get more efficient with a commercial system where you do all or part of the work yourself as well. So there's a lot of flexibility there, but it's kind of the next place I think you should look uh, is reducing the cost of heating your water because it is 12% of your bill. It's 12%. Um, so if you reduce your bill by 6%, you get a half efficiency even during part of the year. It has a significant impact versus the amount of cost and effort it takes to do it. So those are two other systems. I also think you should think about, if you, especially if you live in colder climates, coming up with some alternative heating. Uh, maybe look at the wood stove uh, as an option. Uh, the wood pellet stoves. I, I'm not a huge fan of wood pellet stoves. 
I think they're highly efficient. I think they're they're great from a standpoint of they produce very little pollution. I'm not talking about carbon. I'm talking about all types of pollution products that are released by burning anything. Um, and they're much lower pollution than, than just burning wood. And they're much more efficient at burning wood, which is why their output of, uh, of toxin is lower. Uh, but if you don't have pellets, you're kind of, you know, it's not going to happen for you to have that heat. So you're, again, dependent on a commodity that has to come from a specific supply. So if you're going to go with a pellet stove, you need to make sure that uh, in the spring, when nobody's interested in buying uh, pellets, that that's when you're out laying up enough of a supply to get through the next year. I've even seen stoves that burn corn. I'm not a huge fan of burning corn because we're burning food, but I guess your heating supply could also be an emergency uh, food supply, though. That corn's probably, in fact, definitely not fit for consumption, but I guess if, I, it's probably better than eating the leather off your shoes if time's got that tough. Um, but a good, solid soapstone wood stove, uh, especially if you live on some acreage and you can do some of your own cospicing of trees, which is where you cut only a portion of the tree and allow it to grow back. Uh, and there's a lot of ways to do cospicing. The traditional cospicing, you cut the tree off on an angle low to the ground. You basically cut the whole tree down and let trunks grow up. Uh, but if you look at a lot of trees, you can just take certain portions off the top, and then they grow back really, really fast. And that's a great way to uh, to make a a resource that takes a long time to renew into a resource that takes a short time to renew. And people with 10 acres uh, that are wooded will find that there's a lot of uh, trees that naturally need to be cold and deadwood, and there's probably years of some level of heating that can be provided right off a piece of land that size. You might also, again, we talked about how alternative energy might be that liquid propane tank. You might want to add that as a redundancy. So this isn't really money-saving or efficiency, but if we don't have any wood available and the electrical's out, we can't produce heat, and it's 7 degrees outside, it gets awful cold, uh, having liquid propane and an alternative heating system, that's more of an emergency backup system, but it's something to consider as well. So that'll kind of wrap up heat. I want to talk now about going to that full-tilt solar system, uh, whether it be grid-tied, off-grid, or grid-tied with battery backup. The beauty, again, in the creation of that backup system is the first step. Adding solar or wind or both to it is an intermediate step. Is now when you get to a point where you say, I'd like to really take my house. Maybe not off-grid, maybe not to complete independence, but I'd like to be able to produce a kilowatt, a thousand watts of power from the sun, at least on sunny days. Well, you can hear all kinds of crap about how you know efficient that the solar people will come out and survey your house, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out the place to locate your solar panels where they're going to get the greatest exposure to solar, uh, solar energy. In other words, the greatest solar exposure. It's probably the side of your house that's the most faded from being exposed to solar energy, right? So whether it's on the roof or whether it's a freestanding system, setting up solar panels is not hard. Um, it, it's not complicated at all. It's 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 Lincoln logs. It's it's an erector set. It's pointing and bolting. You can do it. The average American with enough intelligence to comprehend that I want this has enough intelligence to pull it off. Hooking them together is not that hard. All the way back to the main power system, there's a learning curve, but it's not that big. You can do it. And finding your own cost-effective panels. Ordering them when they're on sale, 
having them delivered, doing the installation yourself, buying a, a half barrel of beer and having a bunch of guys over for a barbecue to do the work and drink after the work is done, something like that can save thousands, tens of thousands off the cost of the installation of a system like that. You also have an advantage when you do it that way. When something goes wrong, you don't have to call a guy to come fix it. Odds are you'll know what's wrong because you put it together. It might take longer. You might lose some efficiency of output along the way. It might take some tweaking. But when one day you look up at your roof and go, I've got some extra money now, and I'd like to turn that 1 kilowatt system into a 2 kilowatt system, expanding the system becomes extremely easy. And the only part you really need a professional for is where that low voltage gets converted into high voltage or possibly goes into a battery storage system and gets distributed. That you'll need some help with. That you want a professional for. But even by watching what the professional does, you'll learn even more when you get to that state. Now, what to me is the ideal solar system? It is a grid-tied system with a battery backup system. Uh, going fully off-grid and staying with all direct current is actually a lot more efficient than that. But unless you're going to be able to put in a fairly large system, it's going to be hard to run everything in your household with solar and wind. Whereas if you put in a grid-tied system, you have the grid, you're producing your own. If the grid fails, the, instead of just, I don't like a grid-tied system without battery backup. It adds a lot of expense, but it's worth it. Here's why. I have a grid-tied system. The grid fails. It's nighttime. I have absolutely zero power. None. Nothing. Wind's not blowing. Sun's not shining. There is no power. Even a grid-tied system with the wind blowing and the sun shining, I'm limited to how much I can draw off of that when the grid's down. If I have great big bank of batteries, that, again, that needs to be hooked up and wired by a professional when you get into that size. And I have a, a system for distributing that battery energy throughout the normal systems of my home. When the power fails, those batteries are at full charge. I have the entire duration that a full charge of those batteries lasts until I need the wind to blow or the sun to shine to begin recharging them. I will not have the amount of energy capacity during this down period that I have when the grid's up. But if I was off-grid, I would be at that limit all the time versus some of the time. As I expand my solar and wind generation and expand my battery capacity, I'm less and less dependent. It's a weaning off. Again, the title of today's episode is The Road to Individual Energy Independence, not Immediate Individual Energy Independence. So it's more scalable for the individual to work at over time. So I've given you now the kind of the pathway and, and the, the logical progression that I see on that road. Have I talked about everything you can do? Absolutely not. My hope today was to give you ideas in what you can do to start developing more energy independence for yourself and not be there tomorrow, but be closer tomorrow. You can do something. If it's pulling out the last few incandescent bulbs, then do that. If it's going ahead and building that backup power system, if it's going down to the auto parts store or Walmart or whatever and buying what you need to get that done, then do it. If, you, if you've done things like that and it's adding some solar, if it's adding some more insulation in your attic, if it's building the passive heating system, if it's building a solar hot water system, no matter what it is, do something. Just take another step. 
Every day, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. It might take you 10 years to be sitting high and high and pretty with, so say, 6K of output capacity on your home where you can run the majority of the things other than, let's say, the oven and the air conditioner uh, with everything that you have uh, available to you just from that energy source to have backup systems, redundancies, and generators. But 10 years will pass. Everything I talk about on this show... If, if, if funds are unlimited and resources are unlimited, it can be done swiftly. If for like most people, like myself, you have limited funds and limited resources and limited time, they take years. But the important thing to understand is those years will pass. The older you are, the more you know that's true. If you're 40, you're far more in touch with that statement than if you're 30. If you're 30, you're far more in touch with that statement than if you're 20. If you're 50, you're really in touch with that statement. And all I ask you, no matter what your age is today, is if you had started on this journey 10 years ago, where would you be today? And how much better would you, off would you be? And would have real, would have really required much sacrifice? How much more would you know? And how much more independence would you have? What do you want your next 10 years to bring you? I don't care if you're 70. It's never too late to start. Some of you, some folks are, you know, 80, 90 years old. There's people that are that old that listen to this show, believe it or not. At this point, you're coming into touch with your mortality. And for some people, we come in touch with our mortality very young due to illness and disease and injury. It's still a time to think about who you're going to leave behind. What legacy will you create? Will you create children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that remain dependent on these systems and deal with these problems? Or will you create children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that strive for their own energy independence and begin their journey for that much earlier, and not just for energy independence much earlier, but in all the things that we do as preppers and modern survivalists much earlier? The earlier you start, the further you progress, and the faster you get there. And I do believe, folks, that we should be in a society that we have today we should be living in a society today with all the marvels and modern technology and opportunity that's out there where people by the age of 45 or 50, if they're working, if you want to call it working, I don't mean doing something, I mean employed, it's only because they want to be. It's only because they enjoy what they do, not because they have to. My father-in-law, after he lost his, his wife, uh, was fortunate to find a, a woman that came into his life uh, and when they were both quite quite old, uh, in in their, their he's in his 80s, she's in her 70s. Uh, up until a few years ago, she was in her mid 70s, working for maybe one and a half times minimum wage at a daycare center, taking care of little babies that cry and and are really a, a, I mean anybody that's ever done that kind of work knows how much work it really is to take care of babies. She didn't do it because she wanted to. This wasn't an elderly lady that thought it was great to have babies to hold and, and cuddle and take care of. She worked because she had to, even though she was already drawing Social Security and already getting Social Security from her husband who had passed. She still had to do some work in an environment that was very hard on her. We don't need a society like that anymore. We really do not need that anymore. Well, the only way to get away from that type of society isn't for Social Security to be better. It isn't for a new government program to exist. It isn't for anybody to fix the problem except you for yourself and for those around you. And they teach people that path. The problem is we work every day of our lives now thinking about 
the next day at the most instead of thinking about retirement. Retirement has been be become contribute to your 401k and pray Social Security still there with it. Retirement should be something we're working towards every day. So that by 45 or 50, people are doing the things that they love and if they happen to derive income from them, it's, it's icing on the cake. Or, even if they have to work, they're working 20 hours instead of 60. We have people now that are in their 50s working 60-hour weeks in high-stress situations, and we wonder why we have more heart attacks. Does this sound like alternative energy? It sure as hell is. Because how many of those people are working to keep the lights on? And today, we have better technology and more availability of systems that help us develop our own independence than at any other time in history. We have a greater sharing of knowledge. There's no excuse for not taking action today. So hopefully I've made an impact on you again today about things you can actually do to change your life. And let me ask you a question, especially if you're a young person, 25, 35, 40s. When you're 80, do you want to be an old lady or an old man? that walks into a room and thinks about not turning on the lights because of how much it's going to cost you? Or do you want to be an 80-year-old man or woman that's still out there working hard in that garden because the stress of life hasn't kicked your ass and you've basically been in partial retirement for 30 years and you'll turn on any damn light you want to because it's your energy. The choice is yours. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life when Tom's gets up or even if they don't. Never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Thank you.